This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, Boomers, to another episode of Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated Enterprise show. My name is Floyd Dorsey, and I'm joined here on the bridge of the NX-01 with Jeff Harlan. How's it going over there, Jeff? I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm just uh, suffering a little bit of side effects from time travel, you know, bouncing back and forth from the 22nd and 23rd centuries, but that's all part and parcel of uh, being involved in the Temporal Cold War, even up on the edges. Nice. Um, I see you're manning that station over there, but it doesn't really look like you're working on what you're really supposed to be working on. It looks like, is that Trekopedia? Is that what that says? You doing some homework? Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, uh, just, uh, <coughs> updating some information about the 22nd century. You know, got to get some firsthand information here. Nice. All right. Well, uh, Jeff, I can't believe Norman left us in command when he left. Where did he say he was going? Uh... Something about Decon Gel E, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Well, you know, I've never had a chance to sit in the captain's chair before. Uh, do you think he'd mind if I see how it fits? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and go. I'll give it a try here. Wow. I can tell you the bridge looks a lot different from up here. Uh, let's see. What do you think? Would anyone notice if I fired a torpedo? Huh, let's see. Oh, hey, Norm. I didn't see you walk in. Um, how's it going? You know what? Decon Jelly is very cold. So I left Will back there in the decon chamber to warm it up a little bit. That's okay. a, maybe that's a little bit too much information. Okay. But uh, <laughs> but uh, how, how's the seat feel? How's the captain's seat feel? I mean, you know what? Uh, it's got a nice view up here. I mean, I'm, I can, I, I, I'm not just like humped over my station over here on the side and hoping nobody uh, calls on me or anything. I'm right here in the center, man. This is awesome. I told Tripp to make sure that there was a little bit of a squeak in the chair. I don't know if he took care of that, but if he didn't, um, maybe we can, I don't know, clone him. Right. And then maybe... Uh, Maybe his simulation can fix it because I think actually his simulation was a better version of himself. Uh oh, that's another episode. All right, well, <laughs> hey guys, since we're back, we're back on the bridge. Let's move over to the situation area and see where our Trek rewatches are. So, Norm, are you doing a Trek rewatch right now? And if so, where are you at this point? I am actually for um, Standard Orbit. I am rewatching the original series and. 
I have gotten all the way up to one of the great fan favorites called the Corbamite Maneuver in season one. Nice. Uh, it stars the great Clint Howard at the end as the all-supreme being Balok, a la the Wizard of Oz. Man, I love I love Corbinite Maneuver. It's got it all right there. Uh, Jeff, what about you? Where are you at on your rewatch? Um, Megan and I are uh, just about to wrap up season two of Enterprise. We've got three episodes left. We're uh, getting ready to start First Flight, Bounty, and The Expanse. Oh man, you got some good you got some good trek right there ahead, really quick. All right, yeah, I'm on. I'm still trying to finish season one. But I've been gearing up pretty quick here. I've been doing two or three episodes a day here. I'm trying to catch back up to the uh, From There to Here rewatch. And uh, speaking of rewatches, Trek FM is doing a comprehensive rewatch podcast called From There to Here, the Star Trek 50th anniversary rewatch. And that challenge is getting close to the middle of the series at the time of this recording. And I have to say, I've been very excited lately hearing about everyone's impressions of this great series on the Babel Conference, the Trek FM listeners group on Facebook. So if you're doing an Enterprise rewatch right now, or if this could be your initial watch, welcome. You have come to the right place. On today's Warp 5, we will be continuing our Enterprise retrospective as we cover the themes found in the second quarter of Season 1 episodes, From the Andorian Incident to Silent Enemy. As we discuss Enterprise Season 1, Part 2, Seeking Out New Life and New Civilizations. And as Norman mentioned in our previous Warp 5, future shows will continue with further discussions of overall themes through segments of each season. But for this show, we want to talk about what happens when you step in the middle of a centuries-old political argument, you find an inhabited M-class planet, finally, try to bring some order to the frontier and find out the guy who brings you your eggs actually knows a whole lot more about you than you thought. So just a recap of what we're going to discuss here, guys. We're talking about episodes 7 through 12. So Andorian Incident, Breaking the Ice, Civilization, Fortunate Son, Cold Front, and Silent Enemy. The thought on this series that we're doing, this retrospective, is we're trying to keep it as broad as we can. We just want to hit the themes the high points we'll dig in deeper on these episodes and then more interesting pieces to it. But for these, we're just trying to skim the episodes for the listeners who are actually doing their rewatches right now. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Sounds like a plan. All right. So to kick this off, the name of this first segment is kicking in doors and stepping on toes. (laughs) So Norm, what did you think on that first scene when the doors kicked in and Shran entered the room? Well, first of all, there is no better entrance than Jeffrey Combs coming into the series as Shran. And I know that there was a lot of trepidation about when we were introduced to the Andorians for the first time, because literally there were only a smattering of Andorian sightings throughout the course of, you know, Star Trek from the original series and all the way through the movies. And they were always kind of like behind the scenes. And I do believe that in the Blu-ray, when we were covering that episodes ago, uh, the the greatest risk was trying to animate their antennae. Was it going to work? Was it not going to work? Was this going to fall in their faces? You know, how do you tie in the Andorians after all this time? So seeing that they were really this polar opposite to the Vulcans. And I thought it was a really interesting thing because now you're starting to get to see this really great cultural identity of a race that you've only really touched on probably most prominently in the original series Journey to Babel. And who better than Jeffrey Combs? You know, 
Mr. Everywhere on Star Trek because he's a great personality. He's a fantastic actor and he just has that great tour de force presence about him. And you really needed that for the leader of this Andorian party. If it wasn't him, I'm not sure if it would have worked out so much because, again, he's so magnetic to watch that no matter what's going on around him, you're focused on him. So I thought that was a fantastic choice and a great introduction to the Andorians. That is true. Uh, Jeffrey Combs, he's he's stealing scenes. I mean, there, that's that guy. He really made the Andorians something for me, because, I mean, the only time we'd ever seen Andorians or that I remembered was on the journey to Babel. And, you know, the Andorian was kind of forgettable. The Tellarites were actually more memorable in that episode. But boy, the Andorians came back big time when they hit Enterprise. So, Jeff, what was your impression of the NXO1's crew's first dip into intergalactic politics? I loved it, especially that first shot when the Andorians are just in silhouette and you see their antenna and they're just kind of twitching around and moving. And you've never seen that on Star Trek before. Every single time before this, their antenna had just been static. Uh, They'd floated around from one spot in the head to another throughout the course of their appearances. You know, in the original series, they were on the back of the head and they were basically just big pieces of paper mache. The first time we saw an Andorian, he wasn't even actually an Andorian. He was an Orion in disguise. And, uh, you know, now we're seeing Andorians in their native habitat, so to speak. You know, they've been previous mentions that they were a warrior species that, you know, a lot of the things about them could easily be connected them to the Klingons, you know, some of their, their warrior ethos and their dedication to family uh, that was mentioned in the animated series with uh, yesteryear. Then you have that coming into conflict with the Vulcans who are just very dispassionate. So you've got passionate versus the dispassionate and it's natural conflict. And I just loved that. And then you throw in the humans and the mix in between, and now you've got a conflict where our characters are just going to get stuck right in the middle, and they're going to have to find some way out of this and try to keep on everybody's good side because you know eventually they're all going to be friends somehow. Right. I said this before in a, in a previous show, and I this I know I don't want the listeners to take this the wrong way, but in some cases. In some cases, I actually felt that the Andorians were more Klingon in Enterprise than the Klingons were later on in some of the series. Because you're right, Jeff, they were talking about honor, loyalty, codes of ethics. They had this really great structure in the Imperial Guard. And it just seemed to me that that's where the Klingons of the original series were. When you were dealing with shows like, you know, Errand of Mercy or Day of the Dove, they, they were these, they weren't barbarians. You know, they weren't these, you know, giant ridged uh, forehead headbutting barbarians. They were very tactical, but they also were doing it because they wanted to defend their homeland and proper. So I always felt that that was always their their modus operandi from the very beginning. You know, they wanted to protect their planet from a listening station that they know was there and that the Vulcans were being the most deceitful. But we coming in as listeners with all this history about Vulcans, we're like, the Vulcans can't be this way. That's not what Vulcans are. And I think that's the great thing. Like Floyd and I, you, you and I had this great conversation about where the Vulcans were in the 23rd century of Kirk's time versus where they were in the 22nd century of Archer's time. You know, it's right. they, they're not the Vulcans that you think you know. 
And I thought that was really interesting when it comes to the political dynamic of what was going on and how that eventually would have to come into play with the uh, the forming of the coalition of planets. That's another thing that I liked about the Vulcans in Enterprise was that, yeah, they were deceitful and they were not very nice people, but they were still logical about it because logic works both ways. You can make yourself justify anything with logic. And it wasn't until something happens later that causes them to become more moral and logical. At this point, they're kind of amoral and logical. Yep. Uh, I think that like, boy, the Endorians jumping in and they exposed the Vulcans for something that totally shocked everyone for better or for worse. There were a lot of viewers on the very first watch of enterprise. They came in probably, well, we'll say fans of other series, particularly original series or any, anybody, any series that you got to see Vulcans and that it really kind of set them back probably because these were not Vulcans that they had known. These were Vulcans from a hundred years previous. So you don't know what these Vulcans are like. And if they say they can't tell a lie, it's just because they're not supposed to, but that doesn't mean they can't. And it's pretty obvious when you get into enterprise and you watch, I mean, to Paul bluffs as well as anybody, you know, in the first, so did Spock. Uh, first season, exactly. Spock did too. So it's there when it's available. It's just, they're not supposed to, you, you know, when you say I can't, well, you're not supposed to, you were told not to, but that doesn't mean they don't break the rules. So looking at this, um, the humans, well, not just the humans, but humans and to Paul and the Denoblian and the, and the Beagle end up right in the middle of a centuries long political mess right there. So what did you like on your first time that you watched this versus your rewatches, like the first time that you saw this, what did you think when you saw that the Vulcans were exposed? Norm, what do you, what did you think about that? I found it very interesting. And actually I think the, the first feeling that came into my mind was, was almost worry because and when I say worry, it wasn't I was worried for them. I was worried about how the fans were going to take it because these aren't the Vulcans that you're used to seeing. These are incredibly politically savvy. They have great machinations for their plans for the galaxy. And it also kind of puts you on your heels about, okay, maybe Henry Archer and maybe Jonathan Archer's paranoia about the Vulcans holding them back with warp technology all this time is founded, is actually based in some kind of truth. Because the Vulcans, I think, they only tell you exactly what they need to tell you, at least during this time. And who knows? I mean, even in Spock's time, we don't know the full political ramification of the Vulcan government at that time. We have smatterings of dealings with them, with Sarek as being the Vulcan ambassador, but we really don't know what the giant political structure is for Vulcan because we really never saw it. So seeing this now and seeing kind of how T'Pol fits in because she's really not involved in that level of the political hierarchy, not like Saval is or later on when we see Velas in the Vulcan High Command in season four. So it's interesting that they wanted to make the Vulcans almost the bad guy in this situation. And not bad because they're evil, it's bad because the Vulcans are actually still, they're kind of out for themselves and that's more of an emotional trait than it is a logical trait. You know, preservation, self-preservation. Now, I'm sure, like you said, Jeff, they couch it in the reason of logic. 
because you can explain anything away if you want to through logic. But there are times where the Vulcans are actually a little bit more human than I think people were expecting in this in this series. And I think that's probably where some of the fans were like, no, why aren't they acting like Vulcans? Why isn't it logic, logic, logic? If anything, I'd say they were more Romulan at times. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, no, I totally oh, agree. Man, yeah, human those, was wrong those word, are yeah. fighting wrong. words. Oh, my goodness <laughs> gracious. Wow. <laughs> hey, I have to admit, it, it knocked me back. You know, if like first time watchers right now, if you're watching Enterprise for the first time, it, it did. It set me back just a little bit. But if you let it go ahead and let it ferment a little bit and watch the rest of the series and then come back and watch it again and watch it again, it makes more sense. You know, this is especially after previous. season four. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You get that payoff, man. Season one and season two go together really well. And it, I mean, and we've got some things going through season three there with Paul, but yeah, season four is the payoff. So, um, Jeff, we just can't seem to make many friends. It seems like out there, you know, the NXL one just keeps running into people that don't like them or they just maybe bullies or something like that. So, and in silent enemy, we find an alien who's just not very friendly. Put yourself in Archer's shoes. How would you react to that? I think I probably would have reacted the same way that Archer did. I mean, it, he has no idea what their motive is. He has no idea where they're coming from. And all he knows is he needs to protect his crew somehow. And in his mind, the best way to do that is to get those weapons installed, which means getting back to Earth. Well, hey, Norman, if you were in Archer's shoes, would you have gone back to Earth? You know, I like the way he handled it. And I especially, as um, as a project manager in my professional life, one of the things that you definitely have to do as a, you know, as someone who runs a team is to listen to every option that the team brings to you. And the best way to bolster the spirit and the camaraderie and the esprit de corps of the people that you're with, especially on a mission like this with 84 people in a beagle, well, 83, one Denobulan in a beagle, you need to let your team members perform and show you that they can do what they basically propose that they can do. And I think that was a really nice bit between Trip and Reed saying that we can do this. You know, we're we're the best of the best. This crew's the best of the best. There's no reason why we have to tuck tail and go back to Federation space or Starfleet space and have the people on Mars install our weapons for us. That's not that's not us. You chose us to be these thinkers, these people that are adaptable in space because we we were further out We'd have to do this on our own. So we're going to do this on our own. And I think that was a really good sign uh, and a good choice by the writers to do that, to say, hey, you know what? We are out here on our own. We have to deal with these situations on our own. And Archer has to believe in his crew because if he doesn't, every single time that there's a problem, he's turning back and going back to safe space. And that's not what the mission is about. The mission is about risk and reward. And also risking believing in the talent of your people. But the reward is your people grow, the team grows, and the spirit moves on so you can go further out into space trusting the people that you're with. Yeah, I, I liked it. When I watched the – I got I to gotta say like on the first couple of, of times that I watched through, I was like, well, you know, I may have gone ahead and gone back and maybe resupplied and maybe had maybe some adjustments or anything. But I'm like you now – that I've watched it several times and I'm into the flow of it. And I've come to grips with the time period that we're talking about here. They were, they had to show they were self-sufficient and they did it. And then 
Archer trusted them. He went ahead. He's like, we're done. Okay, that's good. Turn around. Let's go back. Let's keep going. Let's push it on farther. So, yeah, I like that. I like that. Well, also, if they kept going back and looking for help, it always reinforces the Vulcan's positions that you're not ready to be out there. And Jeff, you're shaking your head, so it looks like you wanted to say something about that. Well, um, yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, the whole point for Archer is that he's trying to prove that humans are ready to be out here on our own, and going back, tail tucked between his legs, would show that they're not. So he would try to find some way to to be out there and to stay out there, and that's exactly what he did, but he was also prepared to go back if he absolutely had to. Well, man, once they knocked the uh, top off that mountain... You know, man, let's, I'm, I'm looking for another mountain. Let's do that again. And I love their, I love their reactions when, uh, Archer asked him if he could do it again, you know, like later when he said, can you overload it again? It was like, uh, yeah, that was great. That was great. And we spent all this time trying to calibrate the, uh, the phase cannons and you want us to do what? Yeah. You want us to do yeah. what? You want us to try yeah. to tear it up? Oh, okay. That's funny. All right. I do find it interesting that, uh, they, never really told us anything about these aliens and we never really saw them again. I mean, they popped up again in one of the novels and they popped up again in Star Trek online and they had completely different backstories in both of those. Personally, I I like the story in the, in the novels a little better. It ties back into the original series, but I I find that really interesting choice on the, uh, the part of the the writers at the time that they chose to just leave them a mystery. Yeah. Because of, they're they're gonna I mean they're gonna be flying around and they're gonna be meeting people and then some people aren't gonna speak the same language and they're not gonna figure it out and maybe and with these they didn't talk they just didn't talk at all and it it's it leaves mystery it leaves some wow trepidation like where should we be out here and what are we doing are we are we really doing what we're supposed to be doing and then whose lawn did we just walk across right here well I also think it kind of shades a little bit of the naivete off of you know the the initial first missions because because they were faceless and because they were nameless it was just a threat it was a threat that weren't ready to deal with yet but because they responded the way they did and because archer was able to cultivate the talent of his people it shows that they were adaptable to the threats and they were growing through that particular instance so it doesn't matter if it was going to be a Klingon next time or a Romulan next time or any of the named species. The point of the fact that they were trying to make here was that we weren't ready, but we can learn to be ready because that's what humans do. You know, we, we, we pick ourselves up from our bootstraps. We get ourselves ready for the fight. We don't shy away and we, we tackle it head on and we problem solve. That's, that's always kind of like been Star Trek's greatest tenant is that no matter how dire the situation, we come together, in this case, just as the human race, because there is no federation of planets, but we come together. And you know what? If we can't fix this problem, the best and the brightest that Starfleet has to offer, there's no ship behind us that's going to be able to fix this problem. So it's us. You know, we have to do it because no one else behind us is is even remotely close to being prepared to do what we're doing. That's why we're out here. doesn't mean that we are the best for the situation. We're just the best at the time. So it's either us or nothing. I like that. I like that. So what man. you're you saying fl- is uh, humans are not gazelles. 
That's exactly. <laughs> man, you got me fired up. I want to. I want to go grab some. Go grab something. Go punch somebody here. All right, man. That sounds good. All right. Well, hey, changing gears just a little bit here. Uh, we actually found some people that did want to talk. Uh, but they didn't know who we were. So uh, the episode Civilization, and since I've got the Standard Orbit team here with me, we're all original series fans here. I see Civilization, that it just seems so similar to a Tops episode. What do you think about that, Jeff? Oh, yeah, I, I loved it. Um, it's, you know, original series, you had Kirk beaming down in disguise, Sulu beaming down in disguise, almost getting absorbed into the body, but it, it felt very similar to, to that kind of a vibe. You know, it's, they're trying to find out what's going on here, but not get noticed. I like that. Yeah. Hey, and I also love Flocks. you know, how he is such a perfectionist on the makeup, <laughs> you know, like trying to get the symmetry down. That was so great. That was so great. And hey, Norman, Hoshi almost led first contact here. So what are, what are oh your thoughts gosh. on that, man? Well, first of all, I, I'm, I kind of like, I'm, I, I pity the fact that Will's not with us tonight because I know how much situations like this on this series mean to him because yes, this is setting the precedent of what Hoshi should be doing. She should always be in first contact situation because even though that they have their prosthetics on, and that's a nice tip to the enterprise incident when Kirk turned into a Romulan, you know, you Flocks did this. You know, he there was no replicator, there was no genetic modification through whatever means. This is just good old fashioned plastic surgery. And they go down to the planet, and what happens? Does if their communicator or the universal translator that they're working on busts, they need somebody out there who can adapt to the situation. That's Hoshi. Hoshi was there. She's a you know, she's a what do they call it? What is the term for it? Is it a polyglot? Someone who can actually like um, learn languages and memorize languages on the fly. That's what she does. I mean, that that was the whole point of Archer reinforcing that belief in her in Broken Bow. So it's like, you know, it's Oceus. You are nothing. So why not have her there all the time? She's leading this charge and like, hi, how are you? But in the language of the people. And if, if, if they believe her, it takes all the threat out of their landing party situation because now she can smooth over with the locals and then they don't seem to stick out as much Whip out a communicator or some type of technology that doesn't belong to that type of civilization. And you are completely made and you are breaking a tenant of eventually what will become the prime directive. Maybe or that some kind of directive, right? That an archer can't kiss everyone that he can't speak to. <laughs> That's a rule. That's that should have been the prime directive. <laughs> So, hey, yeah, Hoshi leading first contact. I have to admit that kind of slipped by me. Like I kind of didn't remember that until I on my re- recent rewatch. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Hoshi was almost the one here. And that would have been the perfect person to send down. And and they even explained it in the episode. You know, they even said, like, if the universal communicator goes or translator goes down, you're the perfect person to try to fix it. So then just think if she would have been the diplomat. If she would have had the diplomatic training or if she just was the diplomat for the the whole mission, it could have totally changed that character. And it tied into uh, something that Tripp said earlier in the series is that she's the translator. The, you know, captain's going to need her on away missions way more often than a chief engineer. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I always lament in the series is that you never actually got to see a downtime scene where Hoshi was maybe training one or two more people in what she knew because she was a, she was an educator. She was a teacher. 
So she would have been, she has all the tools. I mean, Floyd, you're an educator. So you understand that she would have been able to start a curriculum when they were on, like, you know, when she was off duty and someone else was on duty, they could have been practicing or listening to tapes. Right. I always wanted to have her something in her ear listening to something all the time because it's almost kind of like an audio file. You can't get enough of it. And that's how Archer lured her onto the Enterprise to begin with when she played a little bit of the Klingon vocabulary. She was hooked instantly. It's like a drug to her. So not having her in the situation there every single time was really mismanagement on the writer's part, in my opinion. Yeah, we only got the occasional glimpse of it like when she went on uh, vacation on Ryza. Right. And actually, that seems like that would be kind of a part of your job. I mean, when you're out there like that, especially if you're bridge crew or bridge staff there, like you don't know Klingon, but you need to be studying it because we're going to be running into them. You know, obviously we have. And then and just it would have been a really nice touch to see Hoshi walk through the mess hall and have like a couple of crewmen or maybe an officer and a crewman or somebody. And they're sitting there trying to practice, you know, and Hoshi comes by and gives them pointers or something as she's on, a, you know, walking to somebody else's table or something like that. That would have been nice. Right. I mean, she did that with Flox a couple times in other episodes when Flox was trying to teach her Denobulin, which was really neat. So it would. Yeah, you're right. It would have been cool if she has her like her, you know, a couple of her backup team because she's not going to be on comms, you know, 24 seven. So somebody's going to have to learn her position in some time for relief. You know, I mean, it's what a three man, a three man duty shift, I think. Right. So mm-hmm. a three person duty shift, I should say. So whoever's on like the nighttime shift or in the in-between shift, they're going to be doing her job. There were a couple of name drops in the second season for other comm officers, but you never really heard anything about them. Yeah. So, yeah, this episode actually found us sticking our nose in other people's business. So, you know, we end up finding the alien there. And I thought that was really cool, the scene where they're in the store and they scan the guy and he scans them back. That was pretty cool. What about looking at this this has got a touch of the prime directive or, or what we should be getting toward some directive non-interference on that. So I feel like there's so many of these first few episodes here are just building toward that. I mean, it's giving us a taste of it. We already know it, but it's just giving us a taste of it. Did you guys have anything else that stood out to you on that episode? Not really. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting balancing act they had to do in this first season when it came to touching on all of the different ways they're going to build up this history that they're referencing from time to time. For all the Enterprise watchers out there, I mean, we really know that there's one episode in particular that that deals with that later on. But for something like this, I don't think that there was a manual that went along with the NX-01 crew that they read that said, here is everything that you need to do out there in first contact and why. So I actually think it was interesting to see them stumble a little bit here and there because this is the learning curve. This is this is the mission that allows you to create the star logs and the captain's logs that go back, that get studied, that get dissected by Starfleet Command, and then get reassessed and said, hey, this could have been better this way if we did this. I find it hard to believe that Starfleet Command actually had a set of directives for them that actually were able to answer everything. It just doesn't seem realistic to me. I'm sure that there were tenants like, you know, don't eat strange plants or um, make sure that you hit the decon chamber to remove any type of alien spore or amoeba or, you know, don't put your ship in danger or that kind of thing. But when it happens, it happens. And, and, and the crew has to deal with it as they deal with it in real time. 
I appreciated the uh, references to the original series in this episode. I mean, beyond just the theme, I mean, you got the Malurians, and that's some pretty deep uh, original series trivia right there that harks right back to, you know, the Changeling where Nomad wiped out the Malurians' home planet. Yep. This this episode, to me, it just, it oh, it reminded me so much of original series. So, you know, looking at that, it was, you've got them going in disguise. You've got Archer kissing the girl to try to, you know, to fix the tech on the side, which I've got to tell you, if you guys ever want me to defend Kirk on standard orbit for seducing or kissing girls, I've got it. I've got that. I've got the argument already <laughs> ready for you. Okay. The, it, he's Archer not, he's not kissing them to kiss them. He's always kissing them for a purpose. Archer was kissing her for a purpose. He didn't just kiss her to kiss her. Okay. Kirk studied these logs right here. Okay. He saw, he saw how we did this. Okay. It's <laughs> awesome. It was for, a, so it's for a reason. It's for the mission. He's doing it mm-hmm. for the mission. You know, somebody's right. got to do it. Oh, well, like, he's the captain's prerogative. Okay. Taking it for the team. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Captain's work is never done. All right. Well, let's talk about some truckers in space here. Uh, both the listeners can't see you guys, but you're both uh, wearing your NXO one and NXO two caps. I need to get me one of those. But um, see if they make the NXO three one. Right. There you go. Right. Right. So, boy, this episode showing us boomers for the first time. Norman, what 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 are your thoughts about boomers here? Oh well, I love I love this episode. We're talking about Fortunate Son. And again, I'm going to channel Will here a little bit because it's one of our favorite episodes because you actually got to see an aspect of Starfleet that's not Starfleet. And what I mean by that is you actually get to see the Earth Cargo Service or the Earth Cargo Authority and an actual real, physical, tangible career for people that didn't belong to Starfleet and how they governed themselves and the threats that they're facing out there and how Starfleet kind of muscles their way into their business. And I find that really interesting because there are certain articles that have come out of late uh, beyond is kind of like trending to this whole aspect of the Federation sometimes isn't really all that welcome. It's government intruding on certain private sectors that don't necessarily agree with the politics of the Federation or what the Federation stands for. It doesn't mean that there's a right or wrong to this. It's just like, hey, you know what? We like our business the way our business runs. And now you've come in almost uninvited to take care of a situation that we can take care of for ourselves. But there is also an aspect here of frontier justice that Archer is trying to alleviate here because there is an issue with torture and holding an alien hostage and... And the, ra- Again, the ramifications of what's going to happen, like he said, he mentioned, like, what's going to happen the next time a cargo h- freighter comes through here? What, what's going to happen to them? Right. But also, you know, with the boomers, you know, we're we're boomers here and fans of War 5. Uh, we love the aspect of that there was this whole kind of career path for people, uh, especially for Travis. And this is Travis is one of his standout episodes. So it was always neat to see um, a little bit more Anthony Montgomery like in the mix. I loved Fortunate Son. I think Fortunate Son is probably one of the best episodes in the series, not just this season. Right. I'd love to play catch with a football like that. That would be so awesome. <laughs> yeah, all across a cargo bay. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's awesome. Right. Microgravity so, for the win. So Jeff, yep. Jeff, what do you what did you think about Fortunate Son here and the the introduction to the Boomers? 
I really enjoyed it. I, I like Norm was saying, I, I loved that they were showing the civilian aspects of the Star Trek universe. I mean, aside from Deep Space Nine, you really didn't see a whole lot of that in Star Trek. And now we're seeing a lot more of it here with the cargo haulers. And these guys are out on the frontier. Starfleet really isn't anywhere to be seen, so they kind of have to protect themselves. And then they're getting attacked by, hang on, it's Nausicans. Ooh. And we'd never even heard of them until Next Generation. And then now here's the Nausicans. And they kind of made it work. I, at first I was thinking, well, you know, maybe it should have been the Orions. But in retrospect, I like that it was the Nausicans. You know, the Nausicans have always kind of been a thorn in the side uh, in Federation space. They're not really a threat. They're just kind of an annoyance. And the Orions are more of a threat. And when they show up finally down the line in the series, they really are a threat. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Boy, for me seeing this, I, I just see so many characteristics of like the history of the American old West for this episode. Like just, here's the Federation. They're the marshal coming out there and they've been doing, you know, they've been getting along by themselves. The pioneers out here on the edge of the frontier, they've been taking care of their own business. They're used to taking care of their own business. And then now all of a sudden you have this Marshall archer that's telling them what they're supposed to be doing. So yeah. Uh, now here's a thought on this, Mr. Atos, what was the, what's the warp factor for those freighters? Do you, do you recall? Um, they were saying that, uh, they were rated for warp two, but when they were loaded with cargo, they only got about 1.8. Okay. So I'm thinking, I mean, this, this could give you a whole other episode, but like this is supposed to be Starfleet, but right now it's like Starfleet of one is mm -hmm. kind of what we're seeing here. So I'm assuming there's probably some warp one, warp two, warp 1.5 ships maybe running around there. So looking at that is kind of like the question I had was like, why are they acting like no one else has been out here? Yeah, and even in the first episode, they were talking about, you know, there are other human colonies out there. Travis is talking about how his family made the run to Drelax and to Vega Colony, and those are some pretty long hauls. I mean, years in between stars, and maybe it's just that Starfleet at this point is kind of staying close to home uh, around each star. They've got, like, an outpost at each star. They don't go too far away from the system. Maybe that's all that it is, and it's not until the NX-01 and the Warp 5 engine comes along that they start really expanding their reach. Because like uh, Admiral Forrest said in the first episode, they've only waited ankle deep in space. Exactly. I like that. Because, I mean, you think about it, it, was, it takes them a week where it used to take them months to do it. So maybe, you know, it, they're, it's just a big desert out there and they're running through it. What do you think about that, Norm? Well, actually, after watching The Martian, I can understand like this romance of, of signing on to this really long journey to like, you know, haul cargo and back to set up colonies. It almost, you know, you have to take a look at it as a, as a succession plan. You know, when, when Starfleet was forming, they're like, okay, we have this engine. Mathematically, it can take us out this far. And it's going to, you know, when you do Einstein's equation of distance and space and time and light, you know, you're looking at it from, okay, if we develop warp technology now using the Phoenix's technology, maybe get us to warp one, pushing one warp point eight without, you know, cargo or whatever, we can go to two. You can go this far and back in a certain amount of time. In the process, we're actually backfilling that with new technology. So by the time they're coming back, we're actually moving further out. So it's almost kind of like this ripple effect, like a wave, you know, like crashing onto the beach and then coming back and then going even further back in its riptide. You're looking at 
technology building behind itself to go forward in this cyclical version of how we're going to expand further and further and further. But the thing is that because we don't have subspace beacon relays set up yet, we don't have the ability to say, okay, hey, this is what's out there. This is what we've run into. You know, we don't really only don't, we start seeing that in some of the episodes where we're setting up, you know, subspace communication beacons so that we can start pinging stuff all the way back to Starfleet to the Enterprise, which is the furthest ship out. So it's neat to see that isolated stuff like it's going on with a fortunate because, again, these guys have to take care of themselves. I mean, they said that the captain was Captain Cook, engineer and uh, chief medical officer all at the same time. I think it was Travis's mom. Right. You know, that was doing that. So, you know, it's neat to see them coming back and having to take care of stuff on their own. And then all of kind of like these posh Starfleet officers saying like, hey, guys, we're here to rescue you. (laughs) And then, like, rescue us from what? We got this. <laughs> right. Right? And we've <laughs> had know? this for a long time before you got here, so just keep on yeah. going. And we can, like, take apart plasma manifolds. Five-year-olds in our ships can do that. Right. Thank you very much, Trip. <laughs> you know? Right. All right, so that brings us to Cold Front. And the Temporal Cold War really kicks it up a notch here. So um, what were your impressions of the Temporal Cold War at this point in the season, Norm? Hard to say. And I think this, I don't want to sound negative on this because everyone knows how much I love the series and I'm a pretty optimistic guy. But because it's, it's so erratic as a story thread, it's hard to, to go all the way back and get the momentum of, of the point of this. You know, and we saw it a little bit in Broken Bow. And the future guy and Silic and what that all means. But I don't think that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that we saw any other touch or thread of that until here, you know, until Cold Front. Right. So that's what we're looking at almost 10 episodes later. 11. Yeah. 11 episodes later. So, you know, it's it's hard to, to try and get a momentum build uh, built with that. I mean, I like what they were doing and I like visiting it again. And, and obviously, you know, um, having Matt Winston come in as Daniels and the mystery behind him having, uh, you know, his technology sealed off, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of potential there, but I wish that there was one more episode somewhere in between. I'm not sure where you would have fit it in, but I think that, you know, the distance between these two stories, uh, these two narrative threads was a little too far apart for me to, to, to try and get jump back into the temporal cold war. Right. It was almost like you'd forgotten that it was going on and then yeah. bam, they drop it on you again. It's like, Oh yeah, we're back to this. Oh, okay. Right. That was cool. It's kind of like the whole, well, it's going so well with all these original series, essence spirit and essence type of missions. Then boom, you're back to this kind of, it's almost like it's like a, not even a B story at this time. It's more like a C story. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So Jeff, what did you think about it? Well, I liked the concept of it, but the execution was really lacking. And like you're saying, it's just too long between uh, installations in the storyline. You know, maybe if they could have popped even just like a subplot into one or two of the previous episodes, something going on in the background that maybe nobody else is aware of that doesn't really pay off until this episode. Right. You know, maybe maybe you could have had Daniel show up, you know, two or three times in previous episodes and something in the story makes it clear that there's something that's a little off about him compared to everybody else in the crew. And nobody really seems to be catching on, but the viewers notice. 
And then in episode 11, we find out who he really is. And it's like, oh, that's what was going on this whole time. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I have to say it, it again, it may have been that because it was between it was so much time between episodes, they dropped this. But I was a little I, I was a little confused that Silic was trying to help them. And it was like, okay, so who's the bad guy here? All right. Yeah, this is, this is it's kind of, I don't know. It just, I mean, I like, I like the Temple of Crowed War because it's there and it's a story. And if you actually break those episodes out, but man, you got to go find them because like mm-hmm. you said, there's 11 episodes between on this one. You really got to go dig and find them. So um, what, what did you guys think about Flocks making friends? <laughs> Were you surprised? <laughs> Not at all. I he's just he's so gregarious. He he's he's just a, a very outgoing, friendly personality. And the very first thing he does when he shows up on the Enterprise is he's starting to make friends. So it makes sense that they run into another ship. He's going to start making friends on that other ship too. Yeah. You know, one of the great things about Star Trek is that they always give you a character or characters that allow you or we as the audience to see the story's eyes through. You know, um, or to see, or, 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 you know, through their eyes, see the story. And I think in season one, I think it's more Flocks and T'Pol, but more Flocks because Flocks was head of the Interspecies Medical Exchange on Earth for Starfleet. He's dealt with many customs and many species. He's about learning and growing and evolving and optimism. I mean, that was his big thing to Archer, you know, optimism, Captain, you know, like, and but that's the thing he you know he loves meeting new anything name it food person culture music whatever art live klingons <laughs> yeah you know he loves egg drop soup i mean who doesn't right so it was neat to see him you know do that role and he's almost kind of like the uh the de facto diplomat for the ship as much as archer is kind of like he's archer was more he was more of the lash in a way and Flox was the uh, more of the uh, the lighter touch. I like that. But I think I needed to be that way, you know, because Archer being in command and Flox always like, you know, don't look at this situation or this experience as something negative. Always look at it as something positive because, you know what, this is the first time that you're doing it as a species ever. So take advantage of it. Yeah, it was. It's really hard to watch this episode and not smile when Flox is on there with the the pilgrims. You know, and like how he's interacting. I mean, it just, it just, it seems so natural and it's just great. It's just great. It's kind of like you just wish you could just follow him around, you know, on that. That's credit to John Billingsley. Sure. Exactly. Exactly. He's yeah. great. So, uh, Norm, what are your final thoughts about this string of episodes that we had here? You know, when, um, in the previous episode, we were talking about kind of like the early missions and kind of like them stretching their legs and, and getting their bearings. I think. These episodes, especially for the people that are watching or the listeners that are listening to this show and they're actually doing the rewatch with us, this block of episodes, at least for me, it kind of starts showing the architecture of what they wanted to do. There were more successful episodes in this block than not. I really think that the only strange episode out of this entire block that doesn't really fit the format of what we're talking about when it comes to new life and new civilizations was Cold Front because Cold Front was, you know, it was specifically for the temporal Cold War. So taking that aside, I mean, we met the Andorians, you know, we met a new species with the Malurians. Uh, we even saw like our own people out there in Fortunate Sun. We met an enemy species that had absolutely no 
care of diplomacy. So we saw all these different ranges of all these different encounters that Archer had to deal with and his crew. And you got to see like really nice individual pockets of talent. You know, you got to see Hoshi do her thing. You got to see Trip and Reed do their thing. You got to see Travis do his thing and all these different episodes. And they all shined in certain aspects. And this is what I wanted Enterprise to be. And I think that it was doing a really great job in being successful at showing the audience the prequel flavor of what Enterprise was trying to accomplish. Yep, I totally agree. Jeff, what are your final thoughts? Well, I really appreciated that uh, this first half of the season was just as solid as it turned out to be. Like like Norm was saying, you know, the temporal Cold War bits seem kind of out of place, and that was partly because it was forced upon them by the network, as we've discussed previously on the show. But uh, there were just a lot of references to the original series. As much as people complain that it uh, was a prequel to the next generation instead of the original, it's got stuff dropped in from the original series left and right. I mean, the very first first contact that they make is with the Axanar. And that's a pretty obscure uh, um, reference to the original series. You run into the Malurians. You've got the Andorians. I mean, it's just original series left and right. And I loved it about the show. And that's one of the things that really hooked me about it early on. Yeah, I totally agree with you guys. Like, they were writing the book for what Kirk and Spock would do later. And then what Picard and Riker would see happen later, whether they did it or not. But it was right down to it. Like, okay, we don't want them to see us. We need to, um, we need to hide who we are. We, you know, we, we're not so sure that we should get into this, this politics, but now we're in it. So let's do what's right. Let's make everyone do what's right. And yeah, there are so many cues to original series. Like right now in this rewatch that I'm watching, I am picking out the smallest details of original series throughout these episodes. And I'm not even finished with season one right now. And I can pick out the smallest things about it. Like I had to stop it the other night to tell my wife, like, watch this. And she, she's not really a Trek fan, but I had to tell her, mm-hmm. like, watch this. Watch how they shoot through this wall. That's exactly how they did it <laughs> in uh, Return of the Archons. So yeah, right now, through this rewatch right now, I'm really getting a really big original series vibe. So, gentlemen, it was a great discussion that we had tonight uh, regarding the second quarter of Enterprise Season 1. But this isn't the only talk here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. <laughs> With Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Uhura, Chekhov, Scotty, Sulu, and the Enterprise. That is your crew. That is the family of the original series. And yes, we would like to see that maintained and protected and treated with reverence. Earl Grey. This 547 meter long, 32 deck, 502 Uh, 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 crew uh, uh. member. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. To the journey! Part of me is going, wow, this is really good. Another part of me is going, really? Like, this is what you spend your time on? I kind of wish that we could use the whole time that we allot for our podcast for you to read this synopsis, because I really enjoyed story time with Tristan. (laughs) Warp 5. If they could have kind of told us it's more of a future for us, but we're going to build up to 
the Star Trek you know. And Larry's uh, comment back was, well, that would mean that they kind of were planning it out and they knew what they were doing ahead of time. <laughs> but <laughs> sing. That sounds right. like Larry. Commentary, Trek stars. And I can see, you know, Abrams recognizing that talent and being like, you know what? I know that you can make a good movie here. You know, I'm not convinced that I can yet, but I think that you can. And I'm going to learn from you, too, so that one day I can make a Star Wars movie. The 602 Club. How do these kids work for you, especially in this first movie? It's amazing when you look back on on how far they've come and the chemistry that they had right off the bat, because from the word go, when they were on the Hogwarts Express all at the same time, that's really when it, it took off. That's really when the movie took off for me. Literary treks. I was given a couple of mandates for Rough Beasts of Empire, one of which was, of course, jump the story ahead four years. Another was get Cisco back on a starship um, and also have Spock uh, in, in, the, in the story. Meta treks. Yeah, so I'm not sure Kern is really the best example in that case because, you know, while he's having an, ex- an existential crisis, he doesn't remember having one. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and maybe that's the real answer. Maybe to, that is uh, the real answer. L- l- lobotomy is the is the answer to an existential crisis. So. Melodic treks. I personally had no problem with the way Tasha Yar died in Skin of Evil. Space is a dangerous place, and I know that we like to see our heroes give their lives in a grand and fashionable manner, but sometimes they just meet an oil slick and get electrocuted by it. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So, Jeff, if you would, please let all of our listeners know all the ways they can access Trek.fm. Well, you can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at Trek.fm, and you can grab the RSS link as well. And if you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes, and it helps us increase our visibility for new listeners. And as Norman will mentioned last week, the orders have come down from Starfleet, and they are issuing Jeff and I the command codes to the NX-01. So Norman, I just wanted to say thank you so much to both you and Will and Christopher for this wonderful opportunity. Um... I'm so excited to see where this adventure goes. And just thinking about it, it's been less than two years that we found Trek FM. We became supporters of the network through Patreon. And now look where we are. I mean, we didn't, we didn't know each other and now look how, look how quickly it's happened. So thank you so much. No, and you're welcome. And um, if I can take a moment here, this is actually a really special occasion because what this means and what this really illustrates for what Trek FM does for the listeners out there and for people that want to be part of the program, it allows you to express your fandom. It allows you to meet all of these great people like I've met, like with, and like I said, Floyd, you, uh, Jeffy, I know you, but you know, uh, you know, you and I talked and, and, uh, you know, we, we worked uh, out a situation where you could come on the network. You know, Will is over there in Boston and uh, I met him through the network. Uh, Tommy Kraft, you know, all these great people that have uh, helped along the way with Warp 5. Uh, Matthew Rushing was doing some editing for us. Uh, Mike Morrison's our executive, you know, one of our associate producers. It's, it's a really fantastic thing that we do here on the network. And there are so many people that care about the quality of the product that we're, we're producing for all of you. And believe me, 
if I had the time in my personal life to cover as many podcasts as I want to, I would. But the fact of the matter is, is that we are a growing network. We have an incredible amount of talent on the programs and actually being cultivated throughout all the different ways that we support Trek FM. So speaking for Will and for myself, it's been a great privilege being able to bring you Warp 5 for the tenure that Will and I have been on the show. And I have absolutely every confidence in the world that the team of Floyd and Jeff and the guest stars that they'll bring on later, hopefully Mike will be able to join us a little bit more. Hopefully Tommy Kraft will be able to join us a little bit more. And I couldn't imagine better people sitting in these chairs. These people, these two guys in particular, they love Warp 5, they love Star Trek, and they love being on Trek FM. So I think that's just a great combination. And it's something that I am proud to, um, well, what did, uh, what did uh, Admiral Pike say at the end of 2009? I, I stand relieved. Nice. Yeah, thank you so much, Norm. So we're all... Patrons of Trek FM through Patreon. So, Norm, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about Patreon.com and uh, how uh, fans and listeners can support their fandom? You know, I was having this really interesting discussion with somebody today about podcasting. And what one thing that they were really surprised about is the resources that are involved with podcasting. And when it comes to that, it comes to resources of servers, resources of finances. And what Patreon is, Patreon is a program that allows you as a fan to be able to support the fandom that you like with financial support. In patreon.com slash trekfm, you'll be able to actually go on that webpage and find different ways that you can help us support the network. We have equipment that needs to be maintained. We have servers that need to be maintained. Uh, we have an, literally actually an overhead for a volunteer group. So when you take a look at all the different offerings that are on patreon.com slash trekfm, you'll find something that's comfortable for you. This is an obligation. Uh, think of it as um, when you see something like a, a public broadcasting station, you know, looking for a funding drive. You know, This is all done through volunteer work, but we also have to pay the bills, if you will. And this is one of those ways that you can help us do that. So please take a look at all the offerings. You can access associate producer credits. You can access different ways of being able to come on the show. One of those ways is through a project called the Patreons Roundtable. But I think, Jeff, you're going to be able to tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. Hey, yeah, Jeff, what, yeah. how many times have you been on the Roundtable, Jeff? Oh, quite a few. Um, like three or four at least, I think. Okay. Well, tell what, what's it like? It's a lot like what we're doing right now. We just kind of sit down and we uh, talk about Star Trek for about an hour. And we just uh, pick a topic beforehand and kind of have at it and everyone just kind of chimes in throws in what uh, they're thinking at the at the time and it's all a lot of it is just kind of off the cuff uh it's just a lot of you know regular star trek fans getting together over a, a chat in the internet and just talking star trek it's it's a lot of fun that's great yeah i i was actually on roundtable number two i've been an associate producer for several months and i got on there and that was the very first podcast that i'd ever been on and that was only a few months ago so a lot of the roundtable members, that's their first podcast. How did you feel? I mean, tell our list. I mean, like, what did it feel like to be on and listen to your voice the very first time on playback? 
Man, I can tell you the night that night when I did it, I was buzzing. It was it was so awesome. It was so awesome. It was so hard to go to sleep. It ended up that it was midnight <laughs> here, and I'm like, I'm on Facebook asking people like, is this how it is every time? You know? And Philip Gilfus actually came on and he said, "Yep, that's how it is every time. That's how awesome it is." Uh, another thing that you have also available if you're a, a paid uh, in Patreon, if you're at a certain level, I believe it's a five dollar level, you get to access the patron zone. So this is a private website that's available. You get uh, ringtones, you can get uh, wall special wallpapers, you get behind the scenes access, you get early access to some episodes. It's really really a neat. Uh, it has a lot of offerings for patrons right there. And also, if you want to wear your Trek FM fandom, you can find great Trek FM themed merchandise at redbubble.com. Just type Trek FM into the search field. And boy, I'm still waiting for that Warp 5 t-shirt. I mean, I know Aaron's busy, but boy, I've got my fingers crossed for that Warp 5 t-shirt. Also, I want to say thank you, as always, to my co-associate producer, Mike Morrison. Mike and I became associate producers of Warp 5 through Patreon.com about the same time. You can find Mike on the Babel Conference, Trek FM's dedicated Facebook listeners page. You can also hear Mike over on his new show, Metatrex, where he and Zachary Fluing discuss all things philosophical through a Star Trek lens. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on Trek FM slash contact and look on the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash Trek FM and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. And as we've mentioned several times, the Babel Conference, type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at Trek FM and click discussion on the menu bar. So Norman, if... Someone wanted to talk some enterprise or just some original series or maybe just where they can find that awesome jacket that you're wearing. Like our, <laughs> our listeners can't see the awesome jacket, but he's totally, he's definitely sporting his archers, uh, flight jacket here. Uh, how can they get in contact with you? Well, you can find me now co-hosting standard orbit Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the original series, along with Jeff, our Mr. Atos. You can always find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference where I am posting daily and answering and engaging in all types of fantastic conversations with all of our great listeners there on Facebook. And just to make a note, I've recently changed my Twitter handle so that you can now find me at Starfighter1701, and I'm one of the executive producers for the network and a proud patron of Trek FM through Patreon. And uh, just to take one more moment of time here... I'm getting a little wistful because uh, this is I mean, this is kind of like my um, changing of the guard shows. Uh, Will and I have had a tremendous time on this show talking to all of the fans and all the listeners. It's actually very gratifying and incredibly inspiring to hear so many fans coming out and showing their support for Enterprise. It really is. Enterprise was so unbelievably unloved and almost maligned in, in the eyes of the fans when it came out. But now, since we're in the 50th anniversary and people are actually paying attention to how good this show really was, I'm so glad that Floyd and Jeff are, 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 are continuing this because, really, Enterprise is such a good show. It really is. And when you take the time to watch it, you'll find out like these people like they really did the best they could in probably the worst situation possible. And it still came out great. So imagine if they had the support behind them that they should have had. It could have been 
literally one of the best of the Star Trek series of all time. So thank you everyone for supporting Will and me when we uh, were doing this in earnest. And please, please continue to support Floyd and Jeff because this is a show worth listening to and these guys are going to do a great job. And I have, I've entered the last of my access codes. So this is Norman Lau for Warp 5 signing off. <laughs> well, hey, well, you get, you're not going to be off the hook completely. We'll have to, we'll have to, you know, Mr. Atos maybe bring you back through the portal, you know, occasionally you're, you know, you're not completely off the hook. Right on. But, uh, hey, Jeff, uh, if listeners want to contact you and talk some, uh, just some Trek facts, where, where can they get in touch with you? Well, if you don't have access to an Atavicron or even the Guardian of Forever, uh, you can find me on the Babel Conference on Facebook. Uh, I post on there all the time. Uh, I'm If I'm not posting, I'm looking at it throughout the day, every day. I'm also on Twitter, at Harlander. And as Norm said, uh, I'm also co-hosting uh, Standard Orbit with him here on the network. And I'm a supporter of the network through Patreon, just like uh, the rest of you. You can also check out my website. It's been called The Grand Unified Theory of Star Trek at trekopedia.com. And it's just my attempt at taking everything, putting it together, and finding ways to make all the pieces fit. Nice. Very good. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always find me on the Babel Conference, our Facebook listeners page. I read it every day and I post there just about every day. So if you're if you want to talk some Enterprise, you want to talk some original series, DS9, any Trek series, I'm de- definitely there. And I'm also I'm I'm there for a lot of other the some of the other sci-fi stuff, but definitely Trek. So gentlemen, 84 is in the books. Uh, Jeff, go ahead and send us off. Well, thank you everyone for listening and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Warp 5. 